This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. It's a busy midday at the Wuhan Center Hospital in China. The floor is a bustle with nurses, cleaners, and of course, patients and their families. The dings and wisps of various machines can be heard from different rooms. Ophthalmologist Dr. Li is jotting down notes in one of his patients' charts. He catches a whiff of something, dim sum, pork dumplings. His gut clenches. He hasn't eaten much today. He's seen patient after patient since he arrived to work. He finishes his notes and switches charts to another patient. He opens the chart and begins to skim through a new test result. But he stops in the middle and starts over, this time reading more carefully. His hunger suddenly disappears. Dr. Lee reads that this patient hasn't been responding to treatment for a respiratory infection, and the result indicates, with high likelihood, the patient is infected with SARS. But something doesn't add up. He knew this patient visited a fish market in town, and so had several other patients with the same symptoms. Dr. Lee has a hunch there is more to this case. He'd better warn his colleagues. COVID-19 coronavirus seemingly appeared out of thin air in Wuhan, China, and swept across densely populated areas around the globe in only a few months. This is the latest pandemic in the long history or war between human civilization and infectious diseases. What is a virus? Where did it come from? Could we have stopped it? How will this impact our healthcare system, our economy, and what happens next? I originally didn't want to do this episode so soon, but I think this past month's events warrant a thorough investigation to clarify confusion and misinformation surrounding this disease, as well as understand it. Keep in mind, some of the data reported here is as of March 18th, 2020. Pandemic information is changing so quickly that by the time this episode drops, some of the numbers will be outdated. Are you panicked? I wouldn't be. But are you calm? I wouldn't be either. We need to face this challenge with a healthy amount of concern. Maybe this C to the Head episode will be the one to, well, go viral. On today's topic, COVID-19. To understand COVID-19, we have to understand the nature of viruses. And to understand viruses, we have to discuss the central dogma of biology. This is going to get sciencey, but that's what this show is about, so please bear with me. In each of our human cells, we have deoxyribose nucleic acid, or DNA, a unique sequence of nucleotides, each with a base adenine, thionine, guanine, or cytosine, or A, T, G, and C, where A always pairs with T in DNA, and G always pairs with C because of how their chemical structures complement each other's shape. Each complementary base pair, of which there are about 3 billion in humans, according to the Human Genome Project, come together to make a long molecule of DNA. The DNA structure is a double helix, meaning the base pairs are held in place by a sugar with a phosphate on both sides of the base pair. 
and in a twisted or helix orientation, kind of like a curled ribbon on a present. Phosphate, sugar, and base are the properties of a nucleotide molecule and compose the genetic code that makes you and me. Ribonucleic acid, or RNA, is similar to DNA, but is a single strand of nucleotides. Another major distinction between RNA and DNA is thionine is replaced by the base molecule uracil, noted by the letter U. Genetic information is decoded by a process called gene expression. In simple terms, the DNA molecule is unraveled and transcribed into RNA by a series of enzymes in the process of transcription. This process occurs in the nucleus of our cells. The product mRNA, or messenger RNA, travels out of the nucleus into the cytosol of the cell, where a complex of RNA and proteins, called a ribosome, attaches itself to the RNA molecule. The ribosomes always attach themselves to a specific three-base pair sequence called a start codon. The start codon is always adenine, uracil, guanine, or AUG, which codes for the amino acid methionine, or MET. The ribosome slides across the RNA molecule by these codon triplets and adds amino acids that correspond to that codon. The molecule tRNA, or transfer RNA, enters the ribosome at a specific site and carries with it an amino acid and the opposite codon that will complement the mRNA codon traveling through the ribosome. This process is called translation. As amino acids are added, eventually the ribosome will reach one of three unique stop codons and disassociate from the mRNA. The long sequence of amino acids is a polypeptide or protein, and the protein's orientation or three-dimensional shape depends on how the amino acid molecules are sequenced and what strong or weak interactions exist between each amino acid, known as the primary through quaternary structures of a protein. This sequence of DNA to RNA to protein is the central dogma of biology, meaning all of life performs gene expression in this process of transcription and translation. Your unique characteristics, your eyes, hair, skin color, and other characteristics known as your phenotype are all products of the proteins expressed by your genes. Viruses follow these same principles. Kind of. A virus is defined by the textbook Molecular Cell Biology by Lodish, Burke, and others as, quote, an obligate intracellular parasite, end quote. A virus is not considered a living organism. In order to be considered a living organism, you have to be able to self-replicate, you must be made of cells, you must use energy to grow, and you must react to environmental stimuli. Viruses are not made of cells. A virus has some variation of a protein structure called a capsid that houses DNA or RNA. And a virus cannot reproduce unless it hijacks a cell and uses the process of transcription and translation to mass-produce more copies of itself. A virus accomplishes the task of copying itself in a five-step lytic cycle, absorption, penetration, replication, assembly, and release. For these explanations, I'm again referencing the textbook Molecular Cell Biology. Number one, absorption. The protein capsid enters the host cell by binding to specific receptors on that cell, which then pull in or absorb the virus. 
Now, the cell membranes of a cell are a complex composition of carbohydrates and different proteins, some of which span the cell's lipid bilayer, like transport channels. But different cells have different receptors on their membranes, which is why different viruses attack different tissues. The viral capsid that happens to match the receptors on lung cells will infect the lungs. 2. Penetration the viral capsid passes through the cellular membrane. 3. Replication A DNA virus will produce viral mRNA using the host cell's transcription capability. An RNA virus will use its own enzymes housed in the capsid. In both cases, the viral mRNA uses the host cell's ribosomes to produce viral proteins. Host cell ribosomes and viral proteins will replicate the viral genome. 4. Assembly The viral genome and proteins assemble to make new copies of the virus. 5. Release These new copies exit the host cell through exocytosis. The host cell can rupture or lyse, releasing all the new copies of the virus. That host cell is now dead, and the new viruses seek out new cells in order to reproduce. Almost all viruses follow this lytic cycle to produce new copies. There are several different types of viruses that exist and cause disease in humans. When it comes to organizing the many kinds of viruses that exist, scientists approach their categorization like any other animal using taxonomy. Taxonomy is the naming of and organizing biological organisms into groups based on common characteristics. Using hierarchical Linnaean classification, we have domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Each represents a single taxon on the hierarchy. Take a panther, for example. Following this hierarchy, panthers are Eukarya, Animalia, Chordata, Mammalian, Carnivora, Felidae, Panthera, Panthera pardus. Now don't worry about the Latin words. The point is, there exists a specific way to classify different species. Viruses are organized the same way. According to Viral Taxonomy by Marjorie J. Miller at UCLA's Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, there is quite a long list of viruses that are pathologic or cause disease in humans. Herpes virus, measles, mumps, influenza, and variola, to name a few. But each of these viruses belongs to a certain family. Think back to the panther. The panther belongs to the family Felidae, and so does your pet cat. That's because Felidae is commonly known as cats. Let's look at the variola virus a bit closer. If you remember from the last episode, the variola virus is smallpox, and infected Soviet leader Joseph Stalin as a child. Smallpox is part of the family Poxviridae, now make no mistake, chickenpox is not in the pox veridae family because chickenpox, varicella zoster virus, is in the herpes viridae family. Chickenpox is more commonly related to the Epstein-Barr virus, or mono, the kissing disease, than it is to smallpox. It's worth noting these are DNA viruses. But looking at the RNA viruses, we find the virus family of which one of its members unleashed itself to the world in 2019, Coronaviridae.
According to the CDC, Coronaviridae is named as such because the coronavirus itself has, quote, crown-like spikes on its surface, end quote. The word corona is the Spanish feminine noun for crown, like a king's crown, hence the logo on the corona beer. Those spikes on the coronavirus, however, are glycoproteins, meaning protein with one or more bonded carbohydrates, that, quote, latch onto human cells, then undergo a structural change that allows the virus membrane to fuse with the cell membrane, according to an article by the National Institutes of Health. It seems these spikes function to achieve the absorption phase of the viral lytic cycle, where the virus binds to specific receptors on the surface of the host cell. Coronaviridae has several common types. According to the CDC, those types are 229E, NL63, OC43, and HKU1, which, quote, usually causes mild to moderate upper respiratory tract illnesses, like the common cold, end quote. If you have ever had a cold, which I'm going to guess close to 100% of us have, you've had a type of coronavirus. Other types of coronavirus are not so mild or moderate. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS or MERS-CoV, is caused by a coronavirus, the signs and symptoms of which include cough, fever, and shortness of breath. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, or SARS-CoV, is yet another coronavirus that was the focus of a pandemic that originated in China in 2002, that infected over 20 countries and killed over 700 people. Signs and symptoms include fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Given these examples, the world has seen its fair share of severe coronavirus outbreaks and experienced the virus in the form of the common cold. But what has encircled our planet now is something new, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. The word novel is an adjective meaning something new or unusual. The novel coronavirus is a new strain of virus from the coronaviridae virus family, a strain of a virus is analogous to, say, different breeds of cats or dogs, or even human races. Each share common genetic characteristics, but differ slightly. According to the World Health Organization, or WHO, COVID-19 stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019, since it emerged late last year in Wuhan, China. The history of China spans many thousands of years, so for our purposes, we will briefly discuss the rise of modern China. Modern China came into existence at the end of the Chinese Civil War that resulted in a communist victory in 1949. That same year, Mao Zedong declared the People's Republic of China and set forth to achieve the ideals of communism. To achieve these ideals, Mao established his disastrous collectivization in 1953 and the Great Leap Forward in 1958 that resulted in millions of deaths, unnecessary starvation, and suffering. Mao eventually died in 1976, and two years later in 1978, Deng Xiaoping established four modernization programs in the areas of agriculture, industry, defense, and science. But China, to this day, remains under the control of a communist party. 
Through the 1980s, the Chinese government relaxed many of the collective land reforms established by Mao in the 1950s. This means Chinese citizens can enjoy some version of private land ownership. Through the 1990s and early 2000s, China grew into an economic powerhouse and critical trade partner to the United States. In the midst of economic growth and prosperity, some people in China enjoyed the expensive cuisine that new money could buy. An article published by CNN on November 13, 2003 states, quote, It is mid-morning in Guangzhou, China, and workers are unloading cages packed with dogs and cats, rabbits and badgers at Jiangsha Animal Market in Guangzhou City in southern China's Guangzhou province. It is a smelly and depressing place. It is the kind of place where, experts believe, the virus that causes severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, may have jumped from animals to humans. It is a place where one can find an astonishing variety of creatures, all destined for the dinner plates as culinary delicacies in this part of the country. A year ago, several cities in Guangzhou province were hit by an outbreak of atypical pneumonia. At the time, medical workers had no idea that they were dealing with a new type of coronavirus that would eventually infect more than 8,000 people in over 25 countries and kill more than 750. Nobody in this part of China then suspected the virus might have come from the animals sold in the market. It then spread to the nation's northern part, crept over the border into neighboring Hong Kong, and traveled around the world. End quote. The cause of the SARS pandemic was investigated, leading some researchers to conclude the outbreak started when the virus jumped from civet cats in these filthy markets to humans working in these conditions. Civets are exotic cats that live in tropical environments that are captured, bred, and raised on farms for slaughter for certain dishes. Some investigative journalists describe seeing civets in cages without limbs, presumably because they got amputated in traps. But where there is an amputation, there is blood. Blood from a wild animal possibly containing organisms that can cause disease in humans. Workers in these conditions may not have received proper blood-borne pathogen training. The owners of these companies may not have known or cared. And the trading of wild animals for food continues to this day. The SARS pandemic came and went. And China went on to host the Beijing Olympics in 2008. China also weathered the financial crisis as well as they could, but they lost about 20 million jobs in its wake. In 2013, Xi Jinping became the president of China. In fact, not just president of the People's Republic of China, he became the general secretary of the Communist Party of China and chairman of the Central Military Commission. In his first five years, President Xi launched an anti-corruption campaign of high-ranking officials in the Communist Party of China, where he also, conveniently, removed his political rivals. Despite these accomplishments, Xi knew his term would be over in 10 years, 10 years being the standard term limit of Chinese presidents like Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao. However, term limits were abolished in March of 2018, 
and Xi Jinping could rule China indefinitely. His regime has posted his face all around cities in China, as dictatorial regimes tend to do, and his critics compare him to Chairman Mao. But we've already talked about doctors and dictators, so what's the point? Well, China is a dominant force on the world stage, and they see certain views and criticisms as a threat to the government's affairs, according to an article by the Financial Times. To counter internal and external influence, President Xi's regime imposes strict censorship on its people, ranging from the silly and laughable to the scary and concerning. An absurd example is the banning of a Winnie the Pooh film because of memes comparing President Xi to the beloved bear of the Hundred Acre Wood. Less absurd and more terrifying is China's domestic and global surveillance. According to an article by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, Chinese domestic internet use is restricted by a sort of virtual perimeter called the Great Firewall. According to the article, in response to the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, quote, Mainland China's pervasive attempts to disrupt and discredit the movement globally have highlighted that China is not above trying to extend its reach beyond the Great Firewall and beyond its own borders. In attempt to silence protests that lie outside the firewall in full view of the rest of the world, China is showing its hand and revealing the tools it can use to silence dissent or criticism worldwide. Some of those tools, such as pressure on private entities including American corporations NBA and Blizzard, have caught U.S. headlines and outraged customers and employees of those companies. Others have been more technical and less obvious to Western observers. End quote. Some of these less obvious, more technical tools include malicious code uploaded to a user's request to an unsecured website that allows the government to flood that unsecured site with additional user traffic to slow down or crash the website. According to this EFF article, this technology is called the Great Canon, and in 2015, quote, the Great Canon took down GitHub where Chinese users were hosting anti-censorship software and mirrors of otherwise banned news outlets like the New York Times. Following widespread international backlash, this attack was halted. End quote. If you don't take anything else away from this bit on Xi Jinping's China, you must remember the Chinese government's censorship infrastructure. Censorship was a significant factor in the limited flow of information concerning the coronavirus outbreak in China for a time. One of the doctors who ran into China's censorship barrier was Dr. Li Wenliang. His biography comes from a variety of sources, many of which are in Mandarin Chinese, which I neither speak nor understand, so I did my best to piece together Dr. Li's life with the information available. That being said, there is a lack of information about Dr. Li before December 2019, when the outbreak started in Wuhan, China. I wanted to find information about him before the media had a chance to either turn him into a hero or the Chinese government turned him into an alarmist. But as far as I can tell, Dr. Li was not in the spotlight before the coronavirus outbreak. That being said, as of March 17, 2020, a Google search of Dr. Li yields a little over 1.7 million results compared to a search for coronavirus, which yields over 3.9 billion results. And that's probably because there are new developments in the pandemic hourly. But the point is there is an information disparity between Dr. Lee and the coronavirus itself. 
So without further ado, Li Wenliang was born on October 12, 1986, in the city of Baijian in Liaoning Province, according to the Wuhan South Public Security Bureau. Liaoning is a coastal province in northern China that borders North Korea. Li attended Baijian High School and was a very good student. He scored very high on China's rigorous National College Entrance Examination, or Gaokao, as it's called, and secured a spot at the Wuhan University School of Medicine in the Hubei province. Most of China's population is located on the coast in cities like Shanghai, but Wuhan is further inland, a little over 500 miles west of Shanghai, about the same distance from Boston, Massachusetts to Charlotte, North Carolina. Lee's seven-year medical program was a combined bachelor's and master's study of clinical medicine. To become a doctor in China, you must pass through a different process than in the United States. In the U.S., you must obtain a college degree in any subject, but pass the pre-med coursework, ideally with high grades. Take the MCAT, apply, and hopefully get in. Then, four years of med school, three years of residency, and then fellowship depending on your specialty. In China, after passing the Gaokao with a high enough score, you take seven years of undergraduate medical studies that includes a year of internship. According to an article published in the Red Star News, in addition to his studies, Li joined the Communist Party of China during his sophomore year. After Dr. Li graduated in 2011, the same year I graduated high school, he took a job at the Jiamen Eye Center at Jiamen University in Fujian Province in southern China, according to an article by The Paper, a Chinese media outlet. Three years later, in 2014, Dr. Li became an ophthalmologist at Wuhan Central Hospital in Wuhan, China. Wuhan Central Hospital itself sits on the Yangtze River Bank. According to a 1919 report by the United States Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce, this clinic was first established in 1880 as Hankow's Catholic Church, and in 1893 it was renamed the Catholic Hospital. According to the American Association of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus, an ophthalmologist is a medical doctor specializing in the treatment and surgery of eyes. In contrast, an optometrist is more primary eye care, like vision screenings. They are not medical doctors, but instead earn a doctor of optometry, or OD, after completing four years of optometry school after undergrad. Dr. Lee is described as a pleasant person who had a good bedside manner with his patients. As far as I can tell, he was liked by his colleagues, kind to his patients, and an effective doctor, all desirable qualities for a physician. In his personal life, Dr. Lee had a wife and one son. He was very active on social media, especially Weibo, one of China's largest social networking apps. According to an article published by The Paper, Dr. Lee posted photos of his meals along with funny critiques of his food. Quote, he loved to eat, end quote. He also liked music and books by Chinese novelist Lao Lao. According to The Guardian, the first case of what was the novel coronavirus was treated on November 17, 2019, but was not recognized as the new strain of the virus. Between November 17 and December 18, 2019, seven patients were diagnosed with the novel coronavirus. Two of these patients had recently visited the Haonan Seafood Market in Wuhan, but there is no evidence to indicate the illness started in this market. According to China Youth Daily, on December 25, 2019, it was suspected that at least two medical staff at Wuhan Central Hospital were infected with the novel coronavirus. Now we arrive at December 30, 2019. 
According to the South China Morning Post, a Hong Kong-based media outlet, Dr. Lee saw patient results that looked unusual because they indicated a high likelihood these patients were infected with undiagnosed pneumonia, likely SARS coronavirus. But this strain needed to be identified. Dr. Lee took to WeChat, China's largest multipurpose messaging app, to convey the information to a closed group chat of old med school classmates. I will read what's available of the transcript of these messages, courtesy of the Beijing News. Quote, Lee, there are seven confirmed cases of SARS at Human Seafood Market. Lee, sends picture of diagnosis report. Lee, also sends video of CT scan results. Quick note, CT scans are used to test infections if the patient isn't responding to treatment. Lee, they are being isolated in the emergency department in our hospital's Haohu Hospital District. Someone else in the chat. Be careful, or else our chat might be dismissed. Lee. The latest news is it has been confirmed that they are coronavirus infections, but the exact virus is being subtyped. Lee. Don't circulate the information outside this group. Tell your family and loved ones to take caution. Lee. In 1937, coronaviruses were first isolated from chicken, end quote. That's where the group chat ends. In his last message, Dr. Lee is referring to the first isolation of bronchitis virus or coronavirus in chicken embryos by two scientists, Baudet and Hudson, in 1937. It's not unusual for doctors even in the United States to discuss their cases with a high degree of anonymity on behalf of the patients because of HIPAA policy. I've heard of doctors discussing their past cases on Facebook, and people in the medical community do collaborate across specialties, but you don't have to have these discussions on social media by any means, especially if it just makes you uncomfortable. I don't know what kind of patient privacy laws there are in China, but within the scope of privacy laws, I'm sure a novel disease would be a hot topic of conversation among colleagues. The South China Morning Post reports that this chat was leaked to the public one day before the official announcement by the public health authorities. Dr. Li's boss blamed him for the leak, and he was investigated by the Wuhan police. The police accused Dr. Li and seven other doctors of, quote, spreading rumors and being a, quote, rumor monger. Dr. Lee was forced to sign an agreement promising not to continue spreading misinformation on the internet under the threat of prosecution if he didn't comply. After this confrontation with the authorities, Dr. Lee returned to work. On December 31, 2019, China reported to the World Health Organization the discovery of, quote, unusual pneumonia, end quote, according to an article by Al Jazeera. It's been said, including by President Trump, that China obstructed the flow of information about the outbreak in Wuhan, which delayed a proper response effort. It's my opinion that this is partly true. Chinese authorities did silence Dr. Li and another physician, Ai Fen, a director at Wuhan Central Hospital, who also posted information on WeChat for their social media posts regarding the illness. But it seems like Chinese scientists were already sequencing the novel coronavirus's RNA and, to their credit, shared that sequence to scientists around the world so people could try to get ahead of the pandemic. However, Chinese scientists completed the sequencing of coronavirus RNA on January 1st, 2020, but didn't make the information public until January 9th, according to the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post. 
The BBC reports that on January 8th, 2020, Dr. Lee saw an elderly patient with glaucoma, that is, damage to the optic nerve behind your eye. The elderly patient also happened to work at the Haonan Seafood Market. The patient developed a fever the next day, and Dr. Lee suspected this patient acquired the novel coronavirus. On January 10th, 2020, Dr. Lee started feeling ill. He had a cough and other signs of an infection as his health deteriorated. He was admitted to the intensive care unit, or the ICU, towards the end of January. The signs and symptoms of COVID-19 are similar to those of both SARS and MERS. Cough, fever, and difficulty breathing, and in some cases, a headache. Respiratory distress can be so severe that some patients need ventilation support. The most at-risk populations for COVID-19 are the elderly and those who are immunocompromised, such as cancer patients with weakened immune systems from chemotherapy. Dr. Lee fought the disease for weeks until, on January 31st, 2020, he took to social media to describe his experience with the Wuhan police and posted the agreement he was made to sign promising not to spread rumors. In this clear violation of that act, His post went, well, viral, and people were outraged by China's censorship apparatus containing information about an impending, uncontained public health crisis. China had already come clean about the outbreak in Wuhan, but that didn't mean people were any less angry about how Dr. Li was silenced. On February 1st, 2020, Dr. Li was formally diagnosed with the novel coronavirus. By February 5th, he was in critical condition and having difficulty breathing. On February 7th, 2020, at the age of 34, Dr. Lee died at Wuhan Central Hospital, leaving behind his pregnant wife and his son. Now, here on CT The Head, we examine the motivations behind the people in healthcare. So let's ask ourselves, what motivated Dr. Lee? It is clear to me that Dr. Lee is an academically gifted individual. The Gaokao test is a brutal, anxiety-inducing, make-it-or-break-it test for young people in China, and Dr. Lee did very well, having been accepted to a medical program. By all accounts, he was a successful student in medical school and liked by his peers, both in school and as a practicing ophthalmologist. When he first read those patients' unusual test results that indicated a SARS infection, Dr. Lee must have been nervous because his patients were sick with a disease they didn't know how to treat. I I get the impression Dr. Lee puts his patients first, seeing as his colleagues noted his excellent bedside manner. It's heartwarming to see him concerned about his classmates and their families, but it seems that level of respect from his old classmates, wasn't reciprocated. Remember, one of his messages in the WeChat group said, quote, Don't circulate the information outside this group. Tell your family and loved ones to take caution. End quote. I think imploring his classmates not to spread the information was a gesture to control any panic that would have followed the release of that information. And who are these classmates of his? Only one of them responded, warning Dr. Lee that the chat would be dismissed, probably because they were being monitored. Then one of these people goes ahead and posts this private chat online anyway. Some friends of his. I don't think Dr. Lee wanted any attention from this, clearly unlike the person who leaked the chat. Personally, 
if I tell somebody not to do something and they do it anyway, I will never trust them again. I have never been in the position of discussing a patient with a novel infectious disease, fortunately. But if I know somebody was putting those conversations online, I wouldn't work with that person again. Dr. Lee was later arrested and interrogated for supposedly spreading rumors about this disease online. They make him sign an agreement to not be a rumor monger. I can only assume if you were born and raised in China under that regime, joined the Communist Party as a college sophomore, that by your upbringing, you'll be inclined to follow the government's instructions. If he didn't follow orders, he would be prosecuted and probably lose his job. Dr. Lee just wanted to see his patients and practice medicine, so I can understand why he didn't want to throw his career away after years of investment and hard work to sit in a Chinese prison. I can't say I wouldn't have done the same. When Dr. Lee became deathly ill, he must have known that his chances of survival, especially with a new disease, were low. This is when, I think, he knew he had to get the message out about how the Wuhan police silenced his concerns over the outbreak of coronavirus. If he was going to die, his career was no longer on the line giving him the chance to expose the extent to which censorship controls the lives of Chinese citizens. What I think motivated Dr. Lee was the need to do the right thing, but to do it in a smart way. That being said, we will never know if he would have exposed the Wuhan police threat if he hadn't faced death. But the fact remains that he did tell the world about his experience with the police. And though Dr. Lee is gone, the conversation ignited over censorship remains. After researching how the Chinese government handled information about the coronavirus, I don't think they were completely withholding information, but I also don't think they were just doling it out either. I think it's easy to look at China with its history of censorship and assume any delay in information is an intentional action to withhold the truth. So what was China's role in this? China didn't cause the outbreak, though some people might believe that in terms of a man-made virus versus nature. But China has now been the nation where two large pandemics in the past 20 years have occurred. That is interesting, but doesn't mean anything per se. Open-air markets selling wild and exotic animals with poor oversight may be to blame. A common factor in these markets, and with markets in Africa that sell bushmeat, are wild animals intended for eating. On February 11th, 2020, an article titled Identification of a Novel Coronavirus Causing Severe Pneumonia in Humans, a descriptive study, was published in the Chinese Journal of Medicine outlining the suspected origin of the disease, explaining its genetic sequence, and its presentation in patients. The article's background is as follows, quote, Human infections with zoonotic coronaviruses, COVs, including Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS-CoV, and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS-CoV, have raised great public health concerns globally. Here, we report a novel bat-origin COV causing severe and fatal pneumonia in humans, end quote. The paper concludes that, quote, a novel bat-borne COV was identified that is associated with the severe and fatal respiratory disease in humans, end quote. 
Zoonotic means the disease is spread from animals to people. Another term you might hear is vector-borne, which means a disease is passed from animals to people by another animal, like mosquitoes. From this point on, when I use the word coronavirus, I am referring to the novel coronavirus we are dealing with right now. From China, the coronavirus spread around the globe. In Italy, the first coronavirus cases appeared on January 30th in Chinese tourists. As the Italian government observed the situation in China, a decision was made to cancel flights to and from China for 90 days. In February, the Italian government banned shipping to Italian ports where the disease was present. Events and non-essential commercial services, including bars and restaurants, according to the Italian Ministry of Health. As of March 18th, the Ministry of Health estimates of 35,713 cases, 28,710 people have tested positive, 2,978 have died, and 4,025 have recovered. In the United States, we were hearing about reports from China about an epidemic of a SARS-like respiratory disease. We knew travel to China was discouraged and to Wuhan was a no-go. Even when I took my daughter to a doctor's appointment last month, I had to tell them we hadn't traveled to China. Here in the United States, we were aware but not worried, so blissfully unaware of what was going to happen. We nervously chuckled at the coronavirus memes. A couple weeks passed before the first cases appeared in Seattle, Washington, where some people apparently carried the disease for weeks without showing symptoms. On March 11th, I had my first shift as a volunteer EMT, and during my shift, coronavirus was a topic of discussion since some people were postponing or canceling flights. People started hoarding toilet paper. Fortunately, us volunteers were made aware of the CDC guidelines for infection control for first responders. I arrived at my shift at 8.30 a.m., and by the time I went home at 1.30 p.m., the WHO had declared coronavirus a global pandemic. The reality of this new world was beginning to set in, but didn't hit me at least until the NCAA canceled the rest of the basketball season. Other sporting events followed suit. The shock of this pandemic rippled through the United States as American culture was incrementally shut down. More individuals started working from home, first temporarily, then until further notice. My wife was made to work from home for two weeks until somebody in her office tested positive for coronavirus, and work from home was extended indefinitely. Bars, restaurants, cafes, and salons were the next to close, and those employees can't exactly work from home. The CDC recommended a tactic of social distancing, that is, if you're not sick and need to leave your home, try to maintain at least six feet of space between yourself and those around you. Some states are coping with the pandemic better than others. According to ArcGIS, a geographical information system, Nevada has few cases and only one death, but the state is closing casinos, bars, and restaurants. Washington State is faring less well with 68 deaths. According to the Washington State Health Department, 1,187 people have tested positive for COVID-19, most of those in King County where Seattle is located. 
in Minnesota, the health department reports that as of March 18th, 77 people have tested positive for coronavirus and has spread to more than 10 counties. In Minneapolis, our mayor ordered bars and restaurants to keep limited hours or close, according to an article from Channel 5 ABC News. Schools in Minnesota have also closed, but that's just following suit with the rest of the country. On a national level, at first it seemed the federal government was fumbling around trying to get a picture of the situation, which hurt some states less prepared for a pandemic that looked to the federal government for funding and leadership. However, on March 18th, President Trump signed into law a multi-hundred billion dollar bill called H.R. 6201, or the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, or FFCRA. According to an article in The Hill, FFCRA, quote, bolsters unemployment insurance and guarantees free domestic testing for the coronavirus. It also provides up to 100 days of paid sick leave for some workers. It caps that at companies with 500 employees and would allow for those with fewer than 50 to apply for a waiver, end quote. This legislation is separate from the nearly trillion-dollar stimulus the White House wants to put into the economy to reduce the economic impact of the coronavirus. For comparison, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act that allocated over $800 billion for stimulus during the 2008 financial crisis during the Obama administration was less adjusted for inflation than what the Trump administration is seeking. Funding for testing is something that's crucial to fight this pandemic. You've probably heard on the news calls for more testing in the United States. From what I can gather, the issue with testing is partly a supply and demand issue and a technology issue. What I mean by supply and demand is the demand for viral testing has massively increased in a short amount of time, and the supply of test kits and labs able to perform these tests is not up to par. According to an article from The Verge, quote, people who are sick or have been in contact with sick people are struggling to get tested. Until last week, the number of tests that could be run per day in the United States was limited to around 7,000. Labs are struggling to get the supplies they need to meet the demand, end quote. Now, I want to spend some time telling you how these tests are performed, because I think the media has done a poor job explaining how the tests are done, as opposed to why they should be done. Obviously, we need to know who and how many people have the virus. So, in general, there are several ways to test for various lung infections, according to the University of Michigan Medical School. Blood tests tell if antibodies have been produced by the body to fight a certain organism. A lung biopsy, where your doctor extracts a sample of lung tissue using a special biopsy needle, takes cells from the source. Computed tomography, or CT scan, can get a detailed picture of different structures inside your body. We talked about CT scans in the overstaffed episode. So, there are a variety of ways to perform these tests. Some are more involved, time-consuming, and invasive than others. But in a pandemic, practitioners aren't going to biopsy thousands of people. Too much time, too expensive, too invasive. So, what can we do? According to two physician friends of mine, the standard test for coronavirus in the hospital is a test called a polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. According to the book Molecular Cell Biology, PCR is a multi-step process by which a segment or region of DNA can be multiplied. 
First, the DNA segment of interest is put in solution and heated to 95 degrees Celsius or about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Heating denatures the segment. That means the DNA separates into two separate single strands. Next, small segments of nucleotides called oligonucleotides are added to the solution in a high concentration in order to increase the probability of binding to a specific complementary end of the newly separated DNA strands. The original DNA being tested remains in a low concentration because there are only two strands among many oligonucleotides. The solution is cooled to about 50 to 60 degrees Celsius. So the two complementary oligonucleotides bind and then perform as a DNA primer. A DNA primer is a short sequence that tells the enzyme DNA polymerase where to start DNA synthesis, which is the final step. So in this last step, the temperature is raised again, and the added DNA polymerase is directed to the DNA primer where it begins DNA synthesis and yields two DNA segments. The process begins again where both DNA segments are separated in a heated solution, oligonucleotides bind to the DNA in cooled solution, and DNA polymerase synthesizes DNA in a heated solution. Now, after this iteration, the experiment contains four intact DNA segments. The next cycle yields eight, so this process is exponential, and after 20 thermocycles, thermocycle being the heating and cooling of the solution, the experiment yields over a million DNA segments. PCR is useful for diagnosing infections because of the test's ability to amplify viral DNA to study the specific virus and its characteristics. Another PCR application we are probably familiar with is personal DNA tests used by companies like 23andMe. In the hospital, tissue for the PCR test is collected by swabbing one or both nostrils of the patient's nose. According to the same article by The Verge, quote, PCR is the gold standard testing platform for viruses because it's highly sensitive, says Paul Yeager, a professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Washington. It can detect even a tiny amount of virus in a patient's sample and is less likely to incorrectly have a negative result. In addition, it's very well known. It was first invented in the 1980s, and the patents on the systems needed to run it expired in 2005, leaving it cheap to do for any lab. So it's straightforward, but it can be slow. For weeks in the U.S., tests for the virus were being done by hand. That's a time-consuming technical process. Even though PCR tests are simple to create, they're complicated to execute. A lab technician has to carefully mix a patient sample with tiny portions of chemicals in tiny tubes, and any bit of contamination can ruin the test. The samples also have to be repeatedly brought up to high heat and back down in a process called thermocycling, which is done on a specific machine. It takes a few hours to get results back, end quote. The issue for the United States is having quick and accurate testing that can keep pace with potential new patients and not overwhelm clinics and hospitals with people needing testing. An example of swift action to combat the coronavirus comes from South Korea. 
according to an article published by Reuters. When only four cases of coronavirus were identified in South Korea, officials assumed the infection would become a pandemic and moved to meet the demand for testing. Lee Sang-won, an infectious disease expert at South Korea's Centers for Disease Control, or SKCDC, stated, quote, We acted like an army, end quote. Biomedical companies promised to act just as fast. By early February, one company was already approved for a diagnostic test. The Reuters article states, quote, South Korea's swift action stands in stark contrast to what has transpired in the United States. The Koreans have tested well over 290,000 people and identified over 8,000 infections. New cases are falling off. 93 were reported Wednesday, down from a daily peak of 909 two weeks earlier. The United States, whose first case was detected the same day as South Korea's, is not even close to meeting demand for testing. About 60,000 tests have been run by public and private labs in a country of 330 million, federal officials said Tuesday. End quote. In terms of the global pandemic, I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There are models of a proper response to the coronavirus like in South Korea, and cases in Wuhan, China are decreasing. But the aftershocks of this outbreak have yet to come. The economic impact and the serious conversation about how we might want to restructure society. The first losses in the stock market were staggering. According to CNBC, the S&P 500 index lost $203 billion in value on Friday, February 28th, 2020. The stock market isn't the entire economy, but benchmarks like the S&P 500 index measure the health of the economy. On March 9th, 2020, U.S. stocks posted the greatest losses since 1987's Black Monday. The S&P 500 index contracted more than 7% and out of 3,000-point territory, the worst since December 2008. Several sources report the stock market gains since Trump took office in January 2017 have been nearly wiped out. In the real economy, international contracts between businesses are being canceled or postponed. The airlines are losing customers and money, and small businesses are hurting from forced closures. Many people are forced to work from home. And with nationwide school closures, this is adding an additional challenge to the adjustment of quarantine life, especially when childcare is suddenly unavailable. Unfortunately for many service workers, life is even more distressing. Grocery workers have to go to work and face the public lest they lose their job. Servers at bars and restaurants are out of work. Workers at malls or luxury stores are out of work. Basically, many people with a public-facing job are now idle. People who make a living working in the gig economy like Lyft and Uber are finding the demand for rides has plummeted in the past two weeks, or dog walkers on apps like Rover whose jobs have been canceled. Though the income has ceased to exist, bills still do, and many are at a loss. Services for the most vulnerable are also on hold. For example, in Minneapolis, there is what's called a crisis nursery that shelters families with children newborn to six years old for up to three days and provides free daily meals for kids whose parents suffer from some sort of crisis such as, quote, unemployment, homelessness, medical or mental health concerns, poverty, domestic violence, or other difficult situations, end quote. 
the nursery is supposed to provide a safe space for the kids while the parents have time to sort out their crises. Now, due to the coronavirus, the shelter has been shut down as of March 19th, 2020. This is a lot to think about, but let's address a few specific points. Let's talk about child care. Child care is expensive enough, with some facilities charging upwards of 800 per week, while child care workers are paid under 35000 a year, if that. What happens if you work at a grocery store, must report to your job every day, possibly even on weekends, and don't have reliable, safe child care? You can't just leave your young kid alone if they aren't old enough to be alone. But you also can't not go to work, lose that money, or possibly your job. Now let's address work from home. The ability to work from home is something many, but not all, office workers now enjoy, depending on your status as exempt or non-exempt, your company, your manager, etc. But it's convenient when companies need to have their employees isolated from each other during a pandemic. Many of these people are also facing the lack of childcare and have to establish workspace and work time with their children. Depending on how long this pandemic occurs, work from home could be a permanent fixture for office employees nationwide. But whether retail or office, there is something employers and employees are going to have to reach an agreement on. And that is an appropriate degree of trust. Other than earning an income to support yourself and your family, have you ever wondered why you have to physically go to work every day, especially with technology as powerful and flexible that we enjoy at this time in human history? Part of this is left over from a 19th and 20th century notion of factory work, and some employers may feel it's necessary for their employees to be supervised to ensure productivity. Some employees may find it helpful to have a different environmental context that's outside of the home to remain productive. And let's face it, there will always be individuals who are just not trustworthy with this degree of independence for whatever reason. In the aftermath of coronavirus, employers and employees should have the conversation to find an equilibrium of trust that is greater autonomy for employees and ensured productivity for employers. And something else I'd like to address that's work-related are benefits. Unfortunately, paid or planned time off, medical leave, maternity leave, paternity leave, medical, dental, and vision benefits are not offered by all employers, let alone equal pay for people of all genders. In a way, this goes back to trust. We as producers and consumers must find a way to become more flexible. People in the gig economy or part-time employees, many of whom work just as hard as anybody else, find themselves out of work with no pay or benefits. What happens if you get sick, under normal circumstances, or find yourself needing a test for coronavirus, hospitalization in the ICU, etc.? Some people work for companies that offer very little in terms of benefits and have to file for unemployment while out of work because of the virus. There aren't systems in place flexible enough for people to be human or face the inevitable hardships of life. Look, this situation is cutting into all of our livelihoods, and we are facing the reality as individuals and a society of losing our balance when riding on the edge of chaos month after month, year after year. And to be fair, the government, the feds, the state, the local governments are going to do what they can to help with aid 
And companies like private labs are doing that as well in terms of testing solutions. Other companies are giving their employees a break. For example, Carter's, a baby and kids clothing company, is still paying their employees regular hours and benefits, despite not being at work. Some restaurants are still doing delivery. You know, thank God for phone and internet if you're lucky enough to have those things. There was a Microsoft study conducted about a year ago that showed over 60 million Americans don't have broadband internet access. That's nearly half the country. Many of those people still have to work, and with coffee shops and libraries closed, I don't know what you would do in that situation. Yeah, this old system seems to work, but it's like that old junker you drove in high school. It gets you from point A to point B, but needs a lot of repair, and if anything breaks, it's uncomfortable or embarrassing at best. We have to brace ourselves for the pandemic to get worse before it gets better. And the economic impact of this has the potential to be, well, frankly, significant. A recession is likely on the horizon, and a vaccine, despite recent approvals for experimental treatments, is at least a year away. But I want to put some of the media hype about the coronavirus into perspective. When stories about the coronavirus first started surfacing, some articles compared it to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that killed about 50 million people. That can imply something very scary, especially to people prone to fear who may not have a lot of scientific education. Quite frankly, we could all consume less media about zombies and take more science classes so we can be grounded in reality and not superimpose fiction into real life. Here are some stats to think about. According to commonjitis.org, an organization dedicated to reduce the instances of meningitis, an infection and inflammation of the meninges membrane that covers the brain and spinal cord, over 1 million people worldwide are affected by meningitis every year. Even more unsettling is meningitis kills about 170,000 people annually. Coronavirus has killed close to 10,000 people in the past three to four months. That's around 3,000 deaths per month, which means for the year to the date of the outbreak, coronavirus would kill around 35,000 people, which is detestable, but we aren't seeing whole countries go on lockdown because of meningitis. According to the WHO, in 2017, malaria was responsible for over 400,000 deaths, but that's mostly endemic to Africa. But we don't close off travel to Africa because of malaria. The WHO also reports that there are over 400 million people worldwide who suffer from diabetes. You don't see countries, especially the United States, drastically overhauling food manufacturing and labeling standards in response to this. Diabetes is one of the leading causes of death worldwide, 1.6 million annually. In 2017, the WHO estimated that over 600,000 people die annually from the seasonal flu worldwide. I don't mean to downplay the seriousness of the coronavirus or anybody's experience who's been affected by it, especially since the virus seems to be more contagious than the flu. The scariest thing about new diseases is the fact that they are new. We don't know how new germs will spread what the symptoms are, how sick people will get, or if it's the bug that does us in as a species. 
But you have to compare numbers and look at how we are treating coronavirus compared to our sometimes casual attitude towards other maladies that are bigger killers. The coronavirus has revealed both peculiar and disgusting behaviors humans are capable of. When the pandemic started gaining attention in the U.S., people started hoarding toilet paper and paper towels. I'm unclear of the exact reasoning of this, but I speculate it's because other people thought if they were to be quarantined in their homes for an extended period of time, they'd need it. Hand sanitizer, Tylenol, and rice are other hot commodities that have flown off the shelves in recent weeks. And a quick word about hand sanitizer. The claim it kills 99.99% of germs is a bit misleading because they don't test sanitizer on human hands. It's actually tested on a flat metal surface, much unlike a human hand. Additionally, sanitizer likes to be kept at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, otherwise the solution becomes less effective. As the sanitizer ages, it's supposed to turn green, but the brands with aloe infused will mask the expired sanitizer because it's already green. Sanitizer is no substitute for washing your hands. Use it between locations where you can wash your hands, like at the office and then at home. More disturbing are the people trying to profit from the coronavirus pandemic. The other day, American televangelist Jim Baker was nailed by the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, for making wild claims that silver cures coronavirus. Health departments have been the targets of hackers, trying to overwhelm their servers and slow down operations. And scammers are calling people posing as CDC employees. Furthermore, many clinics and hospitals have been robbed of their surgical masks. What the coronavirus has quite blatantly pointed out is our complete and utter lack of preparedness, particularly in the United States. The CDC, NIH, and state health departments, hospitals, and their practitioners and staff have done a phenomenal job of caring for the sick, studying the disease, and reducing panic. But our society, our values, are being challenged and called into question. An article in Common Dreams, a nonprofit independent news center, put my thoughts in better words than I could have. Quote, the coronavirus pandemic has laid bare how ill-prepared the U.S. is to address basic human needs, end quote. Coronavirus has shown us the limits of the system we rely on. Now, it is my opinion, this is because our culture prioritizes money, convenience, and excess stuff without adequate, redundant support systems in place should we face hardship or fail. I'm not placing blame with the government, wealthy individuals, companies, no, it's everybody, myself included. It's the culture we grow up with and live in in the United States. This goes back to my point about finding a new point of trust with our employers. We need a cultural shift to find a new point of mutual understanding with each other as Americans, as people who journey through the thick and thin of life and sometimes need help. As people trying to make a living with more resources available to us than just a paycheck. The United States was founded on the idea of creating a culture independent of European influence and meddling. Now we face a crossroads in the wake of this pandemic. If we voluntarily agree to live, work, and go to school differently in a post-coronavirus world, we can achieve that cultural shift where money plays less of an important role. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't be fiscally responsible. I'm saying maybe fiscal responsibility means putting money to better use than hoarding profits. I think what's been more alarming than the disease itself is the shutdowns that various governments have imposed in the United States and our quarantine life. Keep in mind, this strategy is hopefully going to do something called flatten the curve. What that curve is, is a graph showing the number of cases on the y-axis over the time elapsed since the first case on the x-axis. A horizontal line is drawn maybe a quarter of the way up the y-axis parallel to the x-axis. That depicts the U.S. healthcare system's capacity. If people were to continue with business as usual, potentially millions of cases could occur and overwhelm the healthcare system, depicted as a steep bell curve on this graph. The point of quarantine, shelter in place, social distancing, etc., is to keep the number of cases below the healthcare capacity so our healthcare system can treat a manageable number of patients, depicted as a short, wide bell curve below the capacity threshold. Lastly, hand washing. Hand washing, hand washing, hand washing is the best way to prevent the spread of germs. I'm horrified that a few weeks ago, grown adults needed a lesson in hand washing, but I'm not surprised. There have been so many times I've been at work or in public where I noticed somebody use a urinal or go number two and just rinse their hands for five seconds or walk out of the bathroom without doing anything. Ladies, I can only recommend you to stop shaking the hands of your male colleagues and counterparts because four out of ten of them don't wash their hands. I remember at one of my old jobs there was a particular individual who wouldn't wash his hands. In February during flu season, I worked with our front desk office secretary to put a sign on both bathrooms to remind people to wash their hands. About two weeks later, the signs were gone. What happened? Well, this individual who would not wash his hands, also happened to be decently high up in the company, and had them taken down. His reasoning? Reminding people to wash their hands after using the restroom is, quote, too personal. No, it's not. When you're working in a small office and facing clients where you are for sure shaking their hands, you'd better wash your hands. To do so, use warm to mildly hot water. Please do not burn yourself. First, rinse your hands up to your mid-forearm with water. Apply soap and scrub for at least 20 seconds. Rinse the soap off. Dry with paper towels. If those aren't available, please do not use the blow dryers because those blow bacteria into the air. Instead, just air dry by gently swaying your arms and hands down by your side. Good habits, calm, and sorting through the bad information online will get us through this pandemic. Use your technology to connect with your friends, play games, read some books, find a hobby. This is a great experiment in how creative we can get. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to my sister, who's spent many years in Chinese lessons, for checking my pronunciations of Chinese names. 
Special thanks to all the doctors, scientists, nurses, techs, EMS personnel, and other practitioners for keeping us safe and healthy and working hard to stall the pandemic. You can find C to the Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other places where you get podcasts. And for the first time now, you can find C to the Head on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at C to the Head. Please be smart and safe out there. Don't touch your face and don't eat bats. You'll hear from me in the next one.